John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirring up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let's bow our heads this morning and let's pray together that God would stir our hearts and our minds this morning as we think a little more deeply upon his word in this text. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for being a God who speaks, a God who communicates, a God who's transcendent, a God who's glorious, a God who is not like us, a God whose ways are not like our ways, a God that is beyond our comprehension, incomprehensible in all of your being, yet in mercy and grace, you have condescended to us, you have spoken to us in a language that we can understand, in form that we can understand. So, Father, our prayer this morning is that you would give us understanding. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Not what we think this text is telling us, but what you intend for us to know. And help us with your Spirit's help to make application to our own lives. Knowing that any application the Spirit makes is always to drive us to Christ. All that the Spirit does is to glorify Jesus. So that's our prayer, Father. I don't know how each of us came in here this morning, what our state of mind was, what our thoughts were. But by your grace, we ask that as we leave here today, we are consumed with Christ. Exalt Christ. And do whatever work is necessary in us that we might heed the lesson of this invalid. In Jesus' name we pray. Notice in verse 1, we find ourselves back in Jerusalem, where we left off in John's gospel at the end of chapter 4. Jesus was in Canaan, 
for the second time. He had done a second miracle. And now chapter 5 verse 1 opens up with Jesus back in Jerusalem for the second time. John doesn't tell us how he got there. He doesn't tell us how much time has lapsed between the second visit to Cana and the second visit to Jerusalem. The point is, he's in Jerusalem. It's the, uh, a time of the Feast of the Jews. The story picks up with Jesus at a poolside called Bethesda. And notice the detail that John provides us. He tells us that there are, in verse uh, 2, there are five roofed colonnades. So think about a big pool with five large covered patios around it. I mean, a beautiful setting, right? You think about it in your own home and maybe an exterior, you'd like to have a pool and kind of a covered patio. Imagine that, and then five of them around. It's a beautiful landscape. But John tells us more about the context in verse 3. In these covered patios, if you will, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So, it's a place of great physical need. Hold on to that. This is a place of great physical need. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where there's just a a high concentration of suffering and sickness. Uh, Probably the most logical place for all of us would be a hospital. You go into a hospital, and you may not know everybody there, but there's a high concentration of sick people there. Well, that's that's what this poolside at Bethesda is. A high concentration, everyone in physical need. Places like that have a way of stirring up our compassion, doesn't it? It's very significant that of all the places Jesus could have been in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of the Jews, he is at the poolside of Bethesda, walking amongst the needy. But we're going to see something. I want to be careful that we make this observation. What's going to be clear, he's in this place of great physical need. But physical need is not his primary concern. If it's not clear to you now, it will be clear to you as we go along. He is surrounded by a high concentration of physical need. And there's compassion that the fact that he's there. But that is not his primary purpose. Think about your own physical needs. Think how they consume you. They may be what is your primary purpose. Those may be the very things we bring before God. And do not hear me say that God is not concerned about your physical needs. I'm saying they are not primary. Let's keep going. A natural question that would arise is, why are these people around the pool of Bethesda? Why this high concentration of invalids, of, of paralyzed people? Of, why, why are they in this location? If you're looking from your ESV, I want you to look at verses 3 through 5. And somebody tell me when you notice something peculiar there. I'll wait for just a moment. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 5. What do you see? There is no verse 4. It goes from 3, and then it goes right to 5. Now, if anyone happens to have uh, New King James, King James, and I believe New American Standard, you're going to find a verse 4 there. Why? 
Why this difference? If you're reading from King James, New King James, or a, a New American Standard, you're going to find a verse that sounds something like this. So verse 3 says, In these covered patios lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse 4 in the New King James, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. But that's not, verse 4 is not in the ESV. How do we explain that discrepancy? Well, we are not going to get bogged down in the detail. The simple answer is that when it comes to the Bible, we don't have original manuscripts, right? We don't have originally John's first original letter. Someone did at some time. But in order to get the letters of the Bible, the, 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 the gospels of the Bible spread out, they were taken and those originals were copied by scribes. And then those copies were distributed. And the fact of the matter is, we have zero originals of any manuscript of any book of the Bible. All we have are copies. Really, really old copies that date back pretty, pretty close. But as you can imagine, when a scribe is copying, there might be times as he's going about his business, he's reading, he's thinking out loud, and he's thinking, hmm, maybe in this instance, I bet people may begin to wonder why these people were around the pool at Bethesda. And so oftentimes, the scribe would off to the side make a notation. And then as more and more copies of copies were being copied and distributed and distributed, sometimes those notes inadvertently became part of the text. And so this is, where, this is what we call textual variance. Again, this is, we're not going to spend any more time than, than this. So when different Bible versions, you may wonder, why are there so many different versions? Why can't we just have one? Well, because each version, each committee of people who write, they are working off of, do we go back to the really, really old manuscripts? Or do we, the ones that, you know, are newer? Usually, a good rule of thumb in biblical interpretation, the shorter the story, the more original it is. The idea there being, if you find in some manuscripts something that wasn't in some of the old ones, it was probably added. And that's what we have here. The manuscripts that the, uh, the committee of the ESV and other uh, biblical translations use are going off of old manuscripts. And that's the short version of why you don't find a verse 4 there. It doesn't appear in the oldest manuscripts. It appears as though it was a notation, a note that was added by a scribe. It was never intended to be. It was not inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore not included in the version. But it does provide a helpful explanation. Why were these people around the pool at Bethesda? Well, I don't know anything about the pool at Bethesda. So that the notation is a little bit of a help. These were sick people. And they had, here's a key word, a superstition. A superstition. Every once in a while, the pool at Bethesda would begin to stir. We're told historically that the pool of Bethesda had a red tint to it, which thought to, to imply it had medicinal qualities. And it wasn't in that day always understood why at various times the pool would suddenly stir. A superstition began to arise. That's when an angel is coming in and stirring it. 
And the first one to get into that pool, once the angel comes and mysteriously stirs it, there's healing qualities. And so you have this high-density amount of sick people hanging on, clinging to a superstition that if only they can get into the pool first, they'll be healed. That's a helpful note to understand what's going on. They were superstitious. That's why they're there. That pool had no healing qualities any more than your swimming pool does. But there was a superstition that had arised. The important thing here to notice is that Jesus, the divine, uncreated creator, is walking amongst the very needy, and they are a very desperate, superstitious group of people. Notice that Jesus, as he is making his way through the, the pool at Bethesda. He's surrounded by a lot of sick people, but he certainly could have touched every one of them, couldn't he? If physical healing was his primary goal, what did he have to do? I heal you, I heal you. Right over here, boom, 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 boom. I got everybody. He doesn't do that. The implication being, that's not the primary goal. He had a motive. He had a goal. And he hones in upon one particular individual. We're told in verse 5 of John chapter 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. See how the story zooms in upon just one of these invalids. The man is desperate. The man has been at this poolside for a long time. Now we don't know if he had been sick or an invalid since birth and he's 38 years old or if he became paralyzed somewhere later in life and he's an old man and he's just been paralyzed. We don't know. It doesn't matter. The picture is what? A long time of suffering. A long time of hopelessness. A long time of holding on and clinging to some superstition hoping that today might be the day I can get into that pool. 38 is a long time to suffer in hopelessness and despair and clinging to a superstition. But that's what you do when you're desperate, right? You'll do anything. You'll do anything. Now, the pool of Bethesda provided an opportunity, but for 38 years, it hasn't worked out too well for him. We're told Jesus knew he had already been there a long time. It's hard to believe. I'm just thinking about this. Even yesterday, this... It's hard to believe over 38 years. He never made it into the pool. My guess is he did. But it didn't work. And what happens with the superstition when the superstition is proven wrong? Well, you got to understand. You know how superstitions go. It, it didn't work. Here's the explanation. You need to be the first one in. You got in, but man, someone else got in before you. Or another superstition, you've you got to have more faith when you go in. There's something you've got to do. Or say these words as you go in, and then you, you didn't do the right things. And so you, you stay back and day after day after day, hoping and you'll do just the right thing to get what you most want. The picture here is a man who is clearly in despair and desperation, buried in hopelessness, year upon year upon year upon year, buried in disappointment. Now, I doubt any of us, and I don't, maybe I'm wrong, I doubt any of us can sit back and say, I can identify with 38 years of suffering. 
But I bet we can identify with this. Being in suffering and disappointment and discouragement and hardship. It feels like 38 years. You know, when you're in the pit of despair and hopelessness and helplessness, I mean, time just stands still. I mean, it feels like forever. When will I ever get through? And, and usually in the pit, you cling to superstitions. You cling to hope. Maybe if I pray the right prayer. Maybe if I attend church enough. Maybe if at the start of January, I really get serious about my Bible reading. Maybe if I do these things, God will see fit. I'll, I'll do the right combination of religious things that God will finally intervene in my hopelessness. Maybe the problem is I'm just not doing the right thing. There's superstition about the Christian religion. I would contend to you, and this comes from my guy who implores you every week. How is it between your soul and the Bible? That is absolutely a necessity to cultivate a relationship with God. But I also believe you can make your Bible reading a superstition. You're doing it for you. You're doing it for what you hope God will bless you with. Not seeking His glory. We can identify with this invalid. And then Jesus, the Son of God, arrives in the face of this man in 38 years of hopeless despair and asks him in verse 6, do you want to be healed? Jesus knew the answer to that question. Of course he wants to be healed. Why does he ask? To involve, engage the man, to draw out from the man. And notice how he responds, verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. The creator of the universe, omnipotent in power, asks this man, do you want to be healed? And he says, yes. But in order to be healed, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I need to get into that pool. And there's no one to get me into that pool. Do you see the irony there? You got, you got, I mean, his answer makes sense, but you gotta, you're walking along. John has been setting up who this Jesus is from chapter 1. It's this one, omnipotent in power, who's already done these signs and wonders, changing the water into wine and the, the healing of the official son. This one is now standing. Do you want to be healed? Who all he's got to do, we're going to just say a word and he's going to be healed. And this one has what? No clue who Jesus is. None. He's completely focused upon himself, upon his understanding of things, upon his superstitions, upon that pool. Now, this kind of response is not unique to this man. We've seen it all along. When Jesus went to Nicodemus and said, you must be born again, what did Nicodemus say? How am I supposed to be born again? I, am I supposed to get back in my mom's womb? I'm a grown man. He can't see beyond the physical. All he can see is the physical. Can't see who Jesus is and the all-sufficiency of Jesus. Or when Jesus went to the, the woman at the well and said, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. And how did she respond? Where's your bucket? Can't see beyond the physical. And so he comes to this, but do you want to be healed? 
well, yeah, but I got to get in the pool, and everyone keeps beating me in there. Can't see beyond the things of this world. Why? Because his eyes were fixed on the things of this world. And this is going to be a problem going on in the story. Hang on to that one as well. He can't see beyond the things of this world because his eyes were fixed upon the here and now, upon the physical, upon the tangible, upon his superstitions, upon his understanding of things. And with his eyes on the world and on himself, he's got the uncreated creator, omnipotent in power, standing right in front of him. And he's completely unaware. Well, Jesus heals him anyway. Jesus, by grace, speaks a word. And the eternal word healed the man. Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. (laughs) It happens so quickly in the narrative. You've got to keep in mind, 38 years of despair, hopelessness. I can't beat everybody into the water at those moments that what we understand to be an angel stirring up the water. Actually, historically, we're told there are springs off in the distance that at various times just uh, weather elements come in and it, as they pour in at a certain time, created the bubbling. It wasn't it. Jesus is right in front of him. But he's so focused upon himself and his understanding of things. What about us? We're in a position by God's grace, even common grace, that we have an awareness of Jesus. For us, Jesus is right before our very eyes in the midst of our physical needs. Financial needs, personal needs, job needs, family needs, loneliness our sin, we have Jesus right smack dab in front of us. And again, uh, it's right here in this book. And yet how many of us focus upon ourselves and our understanding of things and our superstitions and my hope is in fixing this problem apart from Christ. What a miraculous thing. Jesus just speaks a word. And this invalid is healed. We talk about Jesus' miracles often, so they become common to us. But this is incredible. Absolutely miraculous. This man picks up his bed and walks away. We sing a song, all glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. And that's exactly what happens here. There's only one, and this man never made it to the pool. And yet he's healed by the power of divine grace, the work of Christ. What all-sufficient glory is on display here in the King of kings and Lord of lords. That he can overcome a 38-year debilitation with just a word. He gets all the glory. If you look down at verse 9, the story continues. After the man is healed, he takes up his bed and walks. Now, this is an important part of the story. Now, that was the Sabbath day. 
And that's going to be something very significant because what comes next is really pay attention. If we, if we stop right there, you have high hopes for this individual. But the scene shifts from the working of this miracle at, by Jesus' grace and for His glory. It shifts from the working of this miracle to the interaction between the invalid who's now been healed and the Jews. So let's pretend for a minute. Let's pretend you're a Jew and you see this man who you're well aware has been an invalid for a long, long time, 38 years, let's say, and he comes up walking, carrying his bed. How, you gonna, how do you think a natural response would be? Rejoice? Stand in awe? Just, what in the world has happened? How, how is this possible? Did you get in the pool? You would expect them to inquire. And the man said, no, no, it was, you're not going to believe this individual I saw. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He, maybe you've heard about him. I, I'm learning more and more. He did, the, he did these things in Cana. He did these things in Jerusalem. But he stood in front of me. He just said a word and I was healed. And I mean, I cannot just praise. That's what you would expect. But how do they respond to the man? They see him coming, walking. And they said to him, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to be carrying your bed on the Sabbath. Now, that's terrible for a couple of reasons. Number one, again, they're just misuse of the Sabbath. To claim that a man just healed is breaking the fourth commandment by carrying the bed he'd been bound to for 38 years is a complete abuse of the Sabbath commandment. The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest to glorify God, to rest in God, to rest in Christ, to put everything to the side and for the good of our souls, be reminded you are God, He is God and I am not, and to give Him praise and worship. A second reason this was so problematic is not only because of the abuse of the Sabbath, but because they were so concerned with the details of their man-made religion that they were blind to the glory of God in Christ. They were so consumed by the details of their own rules and regulations, their own religion, they were unable to see the glory of God in Christ Jesus before their very eyes. A man paralyzed for 38 years is walking, and it was Jesus of Nazareth who did it. And they couldn't be any less impressed. It's kind of convicted thinking about that because it goes back to the comment I made just a moment ago. As I was reading over this story and considering it, I moved right past Jesus' miracle, unimpressed of the majesty on display. And I found myself in that moment aligned even with these Jews unimpressed with the glory of Christ. Imagine your child or grandchild brought home a, a test that they'd been studying for. It had a 99 on it. It was a hard test. And they A plus 99. Could you imagine looking at that test and saying, you lost a point. There's a comma. It was supposed to be a period. This is unacceptable. This is, you wouldn't do that. You'd be unimpressed. 
You're like, you would celebrate. Well, that's what, kind of what's happening here. Talk about blindness. The invalid almost seems to make it worse. He says in verse 11, because they said it's the Sabbath and it's not law for you to carry up the bed. Listen to verse 11 through that lens. This is him not glorifying Christ, but shifting blame to Christ. But he answered them. The man who healed me, he's the one who said to me, take up your bed and walk. What's he, he's shifting blame. Yeah, I'm carrying it on the Sabbath, but it's not my fault. I was, he told me to do it. You expect the man who had just been healed by this man to stand up to his critics and say, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? Yeah, I'm carrying this bed I've been bound to for 38 years. I was just healed by this man and give him glory. But that's not what takes place. He cowers before the religious leaders, shifts blame to Jesus, and notice he doesn't even know Jesus' name. This man who did it, he does not know Jesus by name because verse 13 tells us Jesus had withdrawn into the multitude. And then verse 14 tells kind of fast forward a little bit to another encounter between Jesus and the now healed invalid. We're told in verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. A couple of observations. This man who's just been healed by the glory and greatness of Christ is not looking for Christ. What's happening in verse 14? Jesus found him. We talk often about the, a defining characteristic of the true believer. It's not how religious you are. It's love for Christ. Seeing Christ for who he is, the all-sufficient God-man who's done everything necessary for the salvation of your soul, being given a heart that loves and treasures him above all else. This man has just experienced common grace, supernatural grace, and yet there seems to be no interest in Christ. He's not looking for Christ. Christ found him. This says something about the condition of his heart. He had been made well at the hands of Jesus of Nazareth. And instead of celebrating and making much of Jesus, he went on his merry life without regard to Jesus. Remember last week we talked about foxhole Christianity. When the bullets are flying, when the mortars are exploding around you, when your partner right next to you is shot down in battle, you cry out to God, God, help me. Save me and I'll devote my life to you. The true test of that statement is not what happens in the foxhole. It's what? When the bullets stop flying. When the mortars quit exploding. When everything is fine. Do you still cling to Jesus with that same intensity or do you put him on the shelf for the next foxhole experience? That's not true Christianity. And isn't that what we see here? He's put Jesus off to the side. No interest in Jesus. 
But notice Jesus again. Here's where we again see Jesus was not primarily concerned with physical healing. Verse 14, he says to the man, See, you were well. Great. That's really not what this is about. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is concerned for this man's soul. The worst thing that could happen to this man is not another 38 years of paralysis. Now, in that man's mind, perhaps that's what he thought. But the omniscient King of kings and Lord of lords knows you have a much bigger problem than legs that don't work. Something worse will happen unless you come to grips with the realization of you are a sinner before the face of my Father. Now, the worst thing that Jesus has in mind is, of course, the final judgment, eternal separation from God. But this man is totally uninterested in that. Totally uninterested. He got his legs working again. He didn't care about his sin problem. When he was confronted by the Jews concerning his breaking of the Sabbath, he didn't confess Christ. He doesn't defend Christ. He shifts blame to Jesus. It's his fault you caught me carrying the bed. Furthermore, it's not the man healed who's looking for Jesus. It's Jesus who, by grace, is at work in the life of this man who goes looking for him. This man has just simply used Jesus for what he could bring him physically and now has no interest in Christ whatsoever. And as a capstone on that statement, look at verse 15. The man, this is after his second encounter with Jesus. Remember earlier, he didn't know Jesus' name. He shifted blame. Well, now he knows the name. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews... It was Jesus who had healed him. And lest we think that's a small thing, what comes next? And this was why the Jews were persecuting him. It's kind of like a Judas moment. He turned them over, turned Jesus over to the Jews. And in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we begin a section of the book of John, which is really focused upon the growing hostility between the Jews and Jesus. And what began it? Now, there were things going on already in the past, but what's clear here, this man who should have been glorifying Jesus, living unto Jesus, goes. He has no interest in Jesus and turns him in by name to the Jews. And this is why they were persecuting Jesus and ultimately put him on the cross. When Jesus warned this man about his sin problem and the need to repent, that nothing worse may happen to him, he isn't. he's not even thinking about his soul. He's thinking about the life he now lives here in this world, the new opportunity he has. This man is in danger of gaining the whole world but losing his soul. Isn't that the warning we see? 
but he has no interest in it. You see, for Jesus, the primary interest here was not getting this man walking again. That was a means of grace. The primary thing was the second visit. Repent of your sins. Or something far worse will happen. And just as I saved you from your physical limitations, look to me and I can save you from my Father. But if you don't, something worse will happen. All indications are, and I don't know if you've ever read it this way. This man, this is not a happy story. We tend to look at these miracles of Jesus and say, oh my goodness, how wonderful. This man, by all appearances, died separated from Christ. It does not appear he's born again. What do we learn from this? Number one, something I began with. When we're reading the narratives of John, all the Gospels, understand that Jesus is not primarily concerned with physical healing. Now, we've kind of turned Jesus into a guru, a physical healing guru. But Jesus is never, ever primarily concerned with physical healing. Some might read this story without reading it closely and say, see, Jesus came to heal. Jesus came to fix people's problems. This is his mission. He came, he went to the pool at Bethesda where it was full of all these invalids and he's healing this man who was sick. That's his primary mission. You're not reading close enough. That's not the primary mission. If it was, he would have gone around healing everybody. He focused in upon one and his concern for that one was not even his physical health. It was his soul, his need for repentance, his need for salvation. Physical healing is not the main point of this text. And it's not the main point of your life. Listen, we're human. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Every one of us have physical needs. Health, financial jobs, family, some emotional needs. Jesus is not your superstitious religious relic to try to fix those problems. He was sent by the Father for one problem, a spiritual one, your separation from God. And this he did through the cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, this story calls people away from trusting in superstitions. Now, we live in a day today, and it's not unique to today. It's always been the case where we tend to become very superstitious. <laughs> the day of the Internet, when you can just go and search and find what have different people tried for different things, and, oh, it's this, and, oh, it's that. Come and see what I found. And, oh, I'm sorry, that didn't work. I said something new. It's coming to it. Listen, I'm a product of it too. I do the exact same thing. There's one thing that saves. Jesus' primary concern is not our physical health, our physical well-being. I'm not saying he's not interested. I'm saying it's not primary. And Jesus is not a superstition. He is the one who calls us out 
of trusting in superstitions and says, trust in me. Repent of your religious superstitions. If I read the Bible enough, maybe God will fix this problem. If I could touch this religious icon, man, if I, if I, can, if I send money to this ministry, maybe then, like the guy on TV said, the Lord will bless me for doing it. This story calls us away from superstitions and calls us to look unto Jesus for all that he is and all that he's done for the salvation of our souls. Thirdly, the story warns against the absurdity of legalism. Legalism is adding to the Christian faith, adding to religion, rules and regulations as a way of earning God's favor. If you just do this, if you do that, you'll make God happy. But what happens when you become so focused on religion, man-made religion? Kind of what we're looking at in looking unto Jesus. If your eyes are on your religion, your rules, your eyes aren't where? On Jesus. That's true religion, looking unto Jesus, who He is and what He's done. I think also this story warns against the emptiness of worldliness, which we all battle. We saw it modeled in the seven churches of Asia Minor. Worldliness had crept into the church. Well, this man was entirely concerned about his physical health, not his soul. And that's a great definition of worldliness. My primary concern is stuff, not living for the glory of God, using stuff for the glory of God. That's worldliness. And then finally, this story is all about the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus is kind and compassionate. There's no reason for Jesus to have skipped over this invalid, this invalid, this sick person, this paralyzed person, and to come and hone in on this one. That one, that's sheer grace. That's sheer grace. That's kindness. And Jesus' healing of that that individual is not to that individual's glory that he was worthy. It's to the glory of Christ, the power of Christ, that even the spoken word, which spoke all of creation into existence, is sufficient to bring healing to this man. It's about the exaltation of Christ. You and I are helpless apart from Christ. We don't need superstitions. We don't need what the Internet provides. Our ultimate need is not what our our people around us are telling. It is Christ and Christ alone. Prior to Christ, we were the invalid in a desperate state, a hopeless state, a state of sin and rebellion against God. But Jesus Christ has come for His glory to call us out of the world unto Himself and to make a way for it through His life, death, and resurrection. This tragic story of this healed invalid The takeaway is this, but what are you doing with Christ? He's standing right in front of you. Are your eyes fixed upon Christ and His all-sufficient glory? Clinging to Christ, even through 38 years or more of hopelessness and helplessness. Clinging to Him.